We had 31 billion of refis and resets price in March alone. And what that means is the whole market was capacity constrained. We have one of the largest dedicated teams to investing in CLOs that I'm aware of globally with 11 investment professionals. And we were drowning amid the supply. Literally everybody on our team was working 12, 15 hour days um, throughout March. And we would receive feedback that a lot of the large AAA buyers would simply say to dealers, we don't have the resources to read another doc for two and a half weeks out. And that, as Melissa mentioned, caused a short-term supply technical such that you know spreads widened to levels that weren't reflective of the risk in many instances, in our opinion, and provided an opportunity. That was Taryn Leonard, co-head of Structured Credit Investments at Bearings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number seven of season four of Streaming Income. All season long, we are diving deep into the factors shaping today's markets across asset classes like EM debt, high yield, private credit, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. My guests today are Melissa Rico and Taryn Leonard, co-heads of Structured Credit Investments here at Bearings. Melissa and Taryn lead a team at Bearings that consists of 11 dedicated structured credit investment professionals responsible for investing over $19 billion in assets under management as of December 31st, 2020. Our conversation today focused on the topic of CLOs or collateralized loan obligations. Specifically, we talked about how this market has fared over the last year, especially during the height of the COVID volatility. We also discussed the dynamics that are driving the market today, including the notable rise in CLO supply that we've seen and what the implications of that are for investors. And finally, we talked about where Melissa, Taryn, and the team are seeing value today, comparing CLOs of different vintages and credit ratings. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Melissa Rico and Taryn Leonard. All right, Melissa Rico and Taryn Leonard, very excited to have you both back on Streaming Income today. We're recording this virtually, and uh, so I'm curious, where does that uh, find you today, Melissa? I'm home in Charlotte in my home office. How about you, Taryn? I'm at home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Very nice. I hope spring is springing up in Massachusetts uh, as it is here in Charlotte. Um All right. So the topic of our conversation today is, of course, CLOs or collateralized loan obligations, which is a fascinating topic, but it also can be a complicated one. So throughout the course of this conversation, uh, we are going to collectively try to avoid jargon as much as possible and define our terms where appropriate. So Melissa, I would like to start with you. Uh, If you would be so kind, could you set the scene for us and maybe give us the two-minute version or so of how the structured credit market has performed over the last year throughout uh, the pandemic. 
Sure. It, it definitely felt a bit like a roller coaster and that we took a, a, a quite dramatic dip down in March, saw a pretty quick recovery, although didn't feel quite like that at the time, uh, back to really where we started and, and in fact, even tighter. At least that's true through, through the end of January of this year. And just to give a sense of just the volatility, AAAs were the first um, to show signs of weakness. And that's mainly because money managers needed to sell their highest price assets for liquidity. But prices there went from par to 80. Uh, triple Bs fell to $60 price and double Bs were in the 40s to 50s with incredibly wide bid-ask spreads. Double Bs were down almost you know, 33% in the first quarter and that's reported by JP uh, Morgan Chloe Index. And if we sort of go to the second quarter, the outlook turned much more positive as we saw an unprecedented level of government support. Those double Bs drastically recovered with an average return up 36%. Fast forward then to the end of the year, all tranches were in positive territory. Uh, Double Bs were up on average 8%. Prices were back up into the 90s to par really across the stack. And, And as we sit year to date, Today, just continued fiscal support, the vaccine developments, the economy ready to open back up. Uh, we've seen pent up demand, uh, new budgets jumpstart Q1 as we hit um, really record setting supply and, and tighter spreads in January. So, Taryn, um, you know, Melissa just described some pretty dramatic price moves. I don't know uh, for context if those are the most dramatic price moves that we've ever seen in this market, um, but uh, it'd be interesting to hear uh, you know, that in historical context. But I- I'm curious, um, you know, throughout this period of extreme volatility, what were you and the team doing? I mean, did you see this as, uh, you know, a de-risking event or were you looking at it more as sort of a value opportunity? Yeah, we very much were not viewing it as a de-risking event. It was more make sure your seatbelt's on, buckle in for the ride. Um, It was a developing situation. We didn't know how bad things were going to get or how long they were going to stay in that bad place. And so with the backdrop of that, you know, other than a few instances where we had some clients who had some liquidity needs um, that arose from from the pandemic, um, we definitely were not looking to be sellers of anything, quite frankly. And where we did have money, we were very much looking to get involved and put that money to work at, at the lower prices. But we were definitely cognizant of the fact that there were a lot of headwinds facing the market and the economy and corporations. And as a result, we, you know, in, in portfolios that historically invested in double B's in equity, for example, we didn't find the need to take that much risk. If you go back to the third week of March last year, when markets across all risk asset classes hit the lows before the government stepped in with a big stimulus package, you know, we bought a triple B with a 59 handle on March 23rd. And if you fast forward for the next month, you know, on average, we were buying triple Bs in the, in the context of the 70s dollar prices. So when you could go into more risk remote tranches that you felt very comfortable about the structural protections, regardless of how long it took to get over, um, you know, the pandemic, it, it didn't seem to make sense to us to take more risk than that particularly given the upside. Um, I will say that things did recover a lot more swiftly than we expected. I think that we were always working under the scenario that 
as the situation was developing, that eventually we would, um, you know, find a way to deal with this, but that it would probably take the better part of two years for markets to recover. And in essence, as Melissa said, we got back to um, levels that where we started the year, you know, by year end. Uh, one thing I will add where you said is this sort of the most acute movement in prices. It definitely was in terms of the swiftness with which markets fell. So when you look back to the financial crisis, we all lived through um, a time where double B tranches were trading on 10 cents on the dollar. And certainly this go round, they didn't get to those kind of levels. Um, but in the crisis, it took months and months for those price drops to play out. And it literally happened you know, in a matter of days to weeks this go round. So Melissa, you know, we obviously saw this volatility last year. We saw, um, you know, prices uh, fall and then bounce back really dramatically. But, you know, ironically, that got us to a place to start this year where, you know, spreads had actually come back quite a bit. So were you and the team actually a little cautious heading into 2021? I would say we generally felt good about the fundamental picture, um, but I, you know I would be lying if I said we weren't all admitting that we you know we tightened so quickly, especially as we started to approach 2018 tights uh, for the CLO market. Um, it was very clear that there was pent up demand, um, significant AAA demand, especially from uh, banks that were out of the market last year. Um, you know, that being said, just given the backdrop of, you know, the low yield environment and the relative attractiveness of the CLO asset class, you know, we still, you know, thought it made sense to add, of course, and, and continue to, you know, pick our spots. The positive is that there were plenty of deals um, to choose from, just given the record supply that we were seeing. Um, and I would say at the beginning of the year, we knew this reset activity was was coming and could cause bouts of, of widening um, from time to time. Uh, but it was pretty clear we were in a, a risk on scenario. I do think that coming into the particularly the first part of January this year, you know, we were seeing, as Melissa mentioned, new issues price at levels that we hadn't seen since since 2018. And the double B portion of the capital stack, I mean, we were seeing new issues get done at at LIBOR plus 575 um, at par. And in my mind, I was definitely cautious and we actually didn't buy any new issue double Bs in that context because we did know supply was coming, but it also seemed like everything was priced for perfection. And early in the year, there was still a lot of headwinds, if you will, facing vaccine rollout, um, what that would look like. I mean, we didn't really start to make real progress on the vaccine rollout until probably, you know, the end of January. And and I think that for us, knowing that heavy supply was coming and also knowing that what we viewed as sort of, you know, what was priced in was a straight line to the reopening of the economy and still thinking that there were, you know, likely to be bumps along the way. I, I think that we were, you know, positioning ourselves, continuing to stay up in quality, knowing that there might be better entry points. Yeah, so maybe the market got a little ahead of itself uh, heading into year end and, and to start the year off. So I guess if we fast forward to today, Taryn, and you know we think about some of these concerns that were raised again by you know a number of which were raised by rating agencies around um, you know potential defaults, downgrades, that sort of thing. 
Where are we from your perspective today on some of those big concerns? I don't think that those big concerns from last year are relevant, quite frankly. I think that, you know, in the spring of last year, you had various market prognosticators saying that you could see double-digit defaults. I think we're quite comfortable that defaults are going to be within a range um, over, you know, that the foreseeable future that are certainly in line with what these structures are built to withstand. So even if you look, you know, on a rolling 12-month basis through the end of March, defaults loan market-wide were 3.8%. When we talk to our loan team internally and we talk to other CLO managers, I think that market-wide, people are predicting that over the next 12 months, defaults are probably likely somewhere in the range of 2 to 3%. And quite frankly, when we dig into underlying portfolios, even from seasoned CLOs, we think that those um, levels could be much lower. I think that when you think about sort of rating agency action on underlying loans and what that can mean for interest diversion within CLO structures, we're not really concerned about that either. I think that by and large, a lot of those rating actions were taken. But I also think given the swift rebound, that managers have had the flexibility to position portfolios in a way that they can better weather the storm going forward. Um, so in my perspective, you always are worrying about things in the market, but it's a it's a totally new set of things to worry about. You know, you almost return to worrying about global um, macro risks, right? Worrying about geopolitical risks, worrying about rising inflation, worrying about loosening of CLO documents and what that could mean down the line, as opposed to the granularity of you know, how high our default's going to be or what our triple C haircut's going to be. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing how much has changed just within a short amount of time in terms of what some of those top worries are um, on your list. Um, I, I guess one of the big trends that we've seen in this space uh, this year has really been, uh, you know, really um, strong resurgence in supply. And I know that that's got implications for the market, generally speaking. So, Melissa, maybe talk to us a little bit about what's going on here with all this supply. Sure. Yeah, we've um, we've definitely seen, uh, as we talked about, sort of just that uh, just record amount uh, of uh, issuance so far. And the, the interesting thing for for Q1 is, um, you know, while we've had about 103 billion of of issuance in the U.S., about 60 percent of that is really coming from uh, reset or refi volume, and and this technical really just can you know, tend to cause spreads to widen or at least you know put a floor on on spreads. And the reason we're seeing so much of this activity is that given that CLOs are generally a two-year non-call um, and that spreads are tighter today than where, where they were when they were issued, which really means the cost of funding for the CLO is less, the equity tranche really wants to take advantage of that as those economics you know, flow right to them. So tell me a little bit of, uh, more just about um, the difference between resets and, and refis. Sure. The difference, um, a refi, really the only thing that's changing is the coupon. The reinvestment period for the CLO and structure um, will stay the same. Whereas a reset you know, resets the reinvestment period back to a typical five-year and that structure can also change. But what this generally means is that a refi will have a shorter average life versus a reset. 
So when we're assessing relative value, a reset is going to be sort of more easily, you know, comparable to a new issue just from a tenor perspective. One of the things that I have heard you and the team talk about, Melissa, is this idea that there's, you know, so much supply has come to the market that it's almost been difficult for some market participants to actually keep up. So is that is that what you're actually seeing today? And then what are some of the implications of that? Sure. Um, yeah, I would say overall, you know, given that we have a pretty large existing CLO book, we own many of these deals in the market that are coming up for a refi. Um, and what will happen is, you know, that dealer desk will go to existing holders to find out what their role interest is. And so, you know, we're constantly comparing sort of the best relative value from either owning that existing deal or redeploying that into new issue. Um, so, you know, the really the benefits of, of this uh, is that investors have a wide range of deals and, and, and especially us being that we're a large team and, and able to see so much of it. Um, so you can look at to a shorter tenor, you can look at various levels of portfolio quality. And again, they're all coming at different pricing. So it's this constant, you know, are we getting paid? Do we think we're getting paid for the risk? And I would say um, in many cases, you know, I feel like other investors aren't necessarily able to handle um, the type of reset volume we've seen. And I think we've been you know, fortunate that we do have a large team and are able to kind of keep up with, you know, all the activity. And and that does present us, I think, with opportunities um, at wider levels, to be honest, especially in reset deals. Um, and I'd say just the added benefit of this type of activity just overall, um, you know, really allows sort of a natural kind of pruning or pairing of risk um, process uh, in a broader portfolio in that you're getting taken out at par for, you know, bonds that maybe you don't like as much and redeploying those into better value. If I could just add, just to put a, a fine point on March. March in particular, because of the dynamics we talked about and because AAA spreads had compressed so much that, you know, such a preponderance of outstanding deals that were beyond their non-call wanted to come and address their cost of liabilities. We had $31 billion of refis and resets price in March alone. And what that means is the whole market was capacity constrained. We have one of the largest dedicated teams to investing in CLOs that I'm aware of globally with 11 investment professionals. And we were drowning amid the supply. Literally everybody on our team was working 12, 15 hour days um, throughout March. And we would receive feedback that a lot of the large AAA buyers would simply say to dealers, we don't have the resources to read another doc for two and a half weeks out. And Mm. that, as Melissa mentioned, caused a short-term supply technical such that, you know, spreads widened to levels that weren't reflective of the risk in many instances, in our opinion, and provided an opportunity. Yeah, that is so interesting because uh, you don't really think about it, you know, that being necessarily a constraint and, and something that would impact spreads, you know, potentially materially. The fact that buyers of CLOs are were just so inundated with, with the amount of supply that was coming out that they couldn't actually keep up with the capacity in terms of analyzing it. So I think the point around having the team to be able to do that, and it sounds like even with a well-resourced team, you all were really underwater trying to manage all this. So that's a really interesting insight because we don't always have that kind of 
um, you know, clear look into, you know, this market, given that it can be a a little bit more on the opaque side. So that's a really interesting point, Taryn. You know, um, the other question I had for you, Taryn, was just on, you know, I know, you know, back, you know, probably two, three quarters ago, you and the team had a pretty clear, strong preference for cleaner new issue deals. So when I say cleaner, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think basically we're talking about deals that, you know, had less exposure to COVID-related sectors, uh, et cetera. Um, I'm curious, do you still have that preference today or has that changed now? Well, we always have a commitment to staying up in quality with regards to risk, um, regardless of where we're investing in the capital stack. Our preference for where we see relative value has absolutely changed. So last year, we mentioned the fact that um, amid the global pandemic, there were a lot of unknowns, and it was very much a developing situation, and we didn't know how long it was going to take before we saw the larger economy start to reopen. And with that backdrop, we felt like the most prudent thing to do um, and what made the most sense from from a risk-adjusted Um, return standpoint was to buy deals that were ramped with the full knowledge and consideration given to both the credits and the sectors affected by COVID. And so we were one of the first movers to approach managers, for example, back last May when the new issue market reopened and say, hey, we'd like to buy your whole tranche of double Bs. Up until that point, the first deals that were done last year, um, equity tended to retain the double B and the equity tranche. And then we started proactively reaching out to people starting in May saying, we want to buy that. And back then, we were able to buy double Bs with anywhere from, call it, 8 to 12 points of discount and still above 800 um, expected discount margin to maturity. And we thought that those deals made a ton of sense. Um, And they did in retrospect, especially given how quickly the market recovered. When we look out at the market today and we don't have the same sort of overarching concerns when we look at underlying portfolios, we actually think that there's more relative value to be had in refi and reset tranches, particularly in the mezzanine space, than in pure new issues. The reality of it is, is that a lot of the deals that are coming to market have very contained credit risk in the underlying portfolio, you know, very little exposure to tail risk names. But there is a subset of investors who only want to buy pure new issues, and they will pay up for that. So what we saw, for example, was that even when we got to the tights for pure new issues in the in the double B portion of the capital stack, which, as I mentioned, was around LIBOR plus 575, we could buy a refi or a reset double B with just a little bit of tail risk in it, but you know, only marginally lower market value coverage to the tranche, um, equivalent par subordination to a new issue. But we could buy that maybe 50 or 75 basis points back to where the pure new issue was pricing. And in our perspective, given our outlook um, for corporate defaults and, and recoveries in the economy, that was a trade that made a lot of sense to us and continues to make a lot of sense to us. Yeah, it's interesting to me how um, you know preferences can change based on the what's happening from a technical perspective and what's happening from a fundamental perspective. So that's a pretty big change from where we were two, three quarters ago in terms of where you're seeing the the best value. How about from the perspective of you know just looking up and down the credit rating spectrum? 
Melissa, let's let's start at the top of the stack. But I'm I'm curious, you know, where you're seeing value kind of up and down the stack. And, and also if you can give us some context, because again, this is not always, you know, readily available to people. Um, it'd be interesting to hear, you know, what kind of spread pickup you're getting at different points in the stack relative to uh, broadly syndicated loans. Sure. Um, and I would say, you know, value across the uh, the CLO capital stack tends to ebb and flow and, and can actually move around quite quickly. Uh, that being said, really, if we kind of start at the top part of the stack, um, which, you know, is especially attractive for investors looking for more of a, you know, risk remote, you know, sleep at night type of an investment and could put that AAA and AA in, in that category, you can earn a spread of about 110 to 180 over LIBOR, which is a nice pickup, especially especially if you compare it to IG corporates. And again, given how tight spreads have gotten there, uh, we think that's a, you know especially attractive. And then the fact that their floating rate, I think, has definitely come into focus now with um, concern over rising rates. Um, and, and I would say, you know, given the amount of enhancement, you know, on this part of the stack, uh, we can actually get more comfortable with what I would call, you know, tier two managers and even a portfolio quality kind of similar to what Taryn was talking about. Um, you can actually pick up additional spread and, and resets. Maybe the portfolio quality is not quite as, as clean as new issue, but we think, you know, the relative value can be pretty attractive at that part of the stack. Then I'd say, you know, for investors looking for a bit more yield, uh, we've seen a, a move into single A and triple B, which also offers significant structural protection. Um, I, and I would view triple B's uh, pretty equivalent to the spread that you can earn on a, a loan portfolio, as you asked, and potentially more. It, it tends to move around. But what triple B's offer is really insulation from defaults through structural en- enhancement. So that's that's a, you know, a good sort of trade-off in, in our opinion. And, and I would say just in any type of investment grade strategy, if we kind of focus there, uh, I would, you know, look to be more selective as we move down the stack while always, you know, keeping that total return and liquidity in mind. Yeah, Taryn, as we move down the stack and, and we look at, you know, mezzanine tranches and equity tranches, um, what are you seeing there? Are you guys finding value uh, today lower down the stack? Absolutely. Um, I will say that we have started to tighten uh, in the mezzanine space over the last two weeks. But in March in particular, because of the heavy supply technical that we talked about, I think that double Bs um, were extremely attractive. You know, I sit on the high yield allocation committee for our multi-strategy funds um, with regards to structured credit. And to use a sports analogy, you know, we went into that meeting uh, three weeks ago and basically asked for the ball. We said we are extremely attractive relative to loans, bonds, um, the other asset classes that are going in here. And we think that it's, you know, not fundamentally driven, but technically driven um, that things are even trading at the levels that they are and, you know, give us the ball coach. And and so we have increased our allocation there. I think on the equity side, it's sort of interesting because, well, for a decent part of um, the second half of last year, new issue equity was extremely attractive. And into, you know, call it mid-February this year, as AAAs were tightening and tightening quite a bit, I think that the new issue um, arbitrage for equity continued to be attractive. AAAs have backed up, call it 15 basis points over the last um, month or, or six weeks. And 
given that backdrop, I actually think secondary equity is probably a more interesting place to play in terms of relative value than new issue. I think depending on how much value you assess to things like workout equity and, and refi optionality going forward, we're still um, buying and bidding on secondary equity pieces that we expect to return somewhere in the range of call it 13 to 15%. Whereas when we're modeling out new issue equity, we probably see it more in the, in the you know, low double digit returns. Quick follow-up question for you, just going back to your sports analogy, because I think that's a really interesting data point is, um, you know, you mentioned three weeks ago uh, that you basically went in and asked for the ball. And of course, this is a broader meeting where loans and bonds and developed and emerging market debt are all considered. Uh, when was the last time before that that you went in and asked for the ball, so to speak? It had been a while, quite frankly, because last year we never really asked for the ball when things were at their lows. And the reason for that was we would repeatedly say that we thought that there was a tremendous value opportunity in our market, but there were liquidity needs overarching that caused us to not want to overweight CLOs at the moment amid the developing situation. I would say that it had been, you know, probably close to a year and a half since we had gone in and said, you know, we we want more money and we think we can put it to work at levels that are very attractive relative to other asset classes. Yeah, that that to me that's that's just such an interesting data point because uh, my ears perk up when I when I hear uh, something like that. So, uh, Melissa, we're, as we come to the end of this uh, conversation, I had two more questions I wanted to pose to both of you. Um, you know, the first one is, you know, it seems like you've gotten pretty comfortable, I guess, uh, with the, the economic backdrop today and the potential for CLOs looking forward, let's say, the next 12, 24 months. Um, but my question for you is, you know, what could come out of the blue or what could kind of change that outlook that would maybe make you a little less positive? Sure. And, and I think really, you know, t- two things come to mind uh, for me, and it, it really comes down to macro uh, concerns like we've been speaking about. One is the vaccine rollout. It, you know, if that is not what's expected or we start to see new COVID waves, you know, this will obviously impact consumer confidence and spending, which which thereby will impact, you know, growth expectations going forward. The second topic, I would say, is just the concern over inflation and, and really what the impacts to growth and sort of how that can impact markets. Um, you know, if it starts to cause some volatility, I would I would say that that can generally be an opportunity, you know, for us. And, and when we think about higher rates, and uh, we've talked about this a bit, but it's really a positive, you know, for our asset class and that we are floating rate. Yeah. Taryn, anything you would add to that? I agree with both of the things that Melissa highlighted. And, and certainly, um, inflation and if the Fed is too lax in reacting to inflation is on the forefront of my mind. But the other thing that I think a lot about is just that the swift recovery last year was so much driven by both the fiscal and monetary policy that was enacted. And one has to sort of pause and think Um, you know, what tools are actually left in the toolbox for Mm -hmm. the next time that we have a bump in the road. I mean, rates are at almost zero. There's been tremendous stimulus that has been enacted. And and I do just, um, you know, continue to have lingering concerns about, you know, what else is available. 
Yeah, fair point, fair point. Um, all right, so last question, and uh, Taryn, I'll pose this one to you first, and then Melissa, uh, you second. But as we look out over the next couple of years, tell me about what do you think investors should really keep their eye on when it comes to CLOs? It's difficult to look out um, multiple years, given that that things change so quickly. But I will say that one thing... Um, that we're, you know, trying to stay very disciplined on is CLO documentation. And I think that you've had a lot of new entrants to the CLO market in recent years. And sometimes when um, we become a more popular asset class, um, you lose your ability to drive some key doc terms. And we do find a few of the things that have become sort of standard in docs, um, somewhat concerning for what that could mean the next time we hit a bump in the road. And specifically things like um, discount language that impacts what is actually haircut and calculations that decide when cash is diverted in structures, we do worry that perhaps, you know, the impact of some of those things will be muted over time because the language has has changed in docs. Makes a lot of sense. Um, Melissa, final word from you. Anything investors should keep an eye on over the next couple of years? Uh, sure. So, you know, I would just add that, you know, even though we're, we're painting a, a positive backdrop and fundamentals um, are, are strong for this year, I think it's especially true in sort of times of open capital markets like we've been in with with low rates to to continue to be diligent and and really focus on on those fundamentals and that's where you know active management with a focus on you know risks is something we we should lose focus on and you know we just continue with our detailed portfolio analysis um you know, and doing that work and you know, even in strong markets and, and being sort of, you know, very diligent about that. I guess the one topic that I think will continue um, to be a trend in our market is ESG. Um, we're starting to see ESG criteria CLOs come to market. Um, I think we have a, a lot more work to do there and, and it, the market will continue to evolve and, and hopefully we will, you know, broaden that scope out. Um, as of now, it, it, it's quite limited with the criteria that's being set. Set. Um, but as we speak to managers uh, with regards to ESG, we're just encouraged by the continual improvements that we're seeing there. Um, and I think the CLO market will look for a broader solution as to how we can quantify ESG across deals and managers. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm glad you brought ESG up because it's it's a topic that obviously is permeating pretty much every asset class at this stage. And, uh, you know, on almost every podcast we're talking about it these days and almost every, you know, piece of content that's being published. Um, and, you know, a lot of work has been done with the high yield team and equity team and real estate teams. Um, it's just such an active space right now. So I'm glad that you brought that up. It could give us an idea for our next CLO podcast episode down the line at some point. Um, I think that would be a really interesting uh, topic to, to dive into, but that will wait for another day. Um, and for now, I will just thank the both of you for joining me. I think uh, this has been great to get up to speed on what's been going on in this market over the last year or so, but also kind of what's going on now and what you think uh, could happen next. So, Melissa, Taryn, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to episode number seven of season four of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.